I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The next chapter. You know how they say truth is beauty and beauty is truth? Art is a lot more powerful than you think it is. That's a question that I asked myself over and over and over again while experiencing some of this. The next chapter. On CBC Radio 1. And Sirius XM. A love of art and color is woven through C.S. Richardson's novel, All the Color in the World. And that tracks because C.S. Richardson is an award-winning book designer who has created thousands of covers. And as a best-selling author, he's shown he's equally adept at words as he is at pictures. All the Color in the World highlights the restorative power of art in one man's life. And C.S. speaks with our columnist, Ryan B. Patrick, in a half an hour. It's been a busy fall for Essie Idujan. She's the chair of the Booker Prize. It will be awarded next week. And she's published her first children's book, Garden of Lost Socks. Essie found time to come in to answer our version of the Proust questionnaire, and that's later today on the program. Also today, our columnist Donna Bailey Nurse returns to tell us about a couple of novels she highly recommends. But first, Marina Endicott on The Observer, her novel of small-town life and the RCMP officers who serve and protect. I'm Ali Hassan. Welcome to the next chapter. When she was a young woman, Marina Endicott left her theater job to move to Mayor Thorpe, Alberta with her spouse. It was his first posting with the RCMP, and the experience changed Marina's life and those years she spent living among other RCMP wives in a rural community inspired her new novel, The Observer. Julia is the lead character in The Observer, and she lives with her beloved Hardy, which puts her both inside and outside of his life as a police officer. As the years unfold, the toll of this work grows heavier for both she and Hardy. And what emerges is a nuanced exploration of police work and life in a tight-knit community. Marina Endicott joins me now from Saskatoon. Hello and welcome back to the next chapter. Hello, Ali. How nice to be here. Uh, so, Marina, on the back of the book, there's a blurb that describes The Observer as a book you tried to write for 20 years. I have to ask, why so long? Oh, it's longer than 20, actually. Looking back on it, I realized that I actually got Alberta Foundation for the Arts grant to write this book in 1997. I started trying to write it when we were still in Marathorpe, in the town that I'm basing this on, and um, failed completely, and then continued to fail miserably and completely Mm -hmm. many, many times over the next couple of decades. A lot of failure, a road paved with a lot of failure, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah, and good intentions, probably. You mentioned, you know, this is fiction. It grew out of your own experience there. And what kind of memories of your own time in Marathorpe did you have to access to write about your, your fictional town of Medway? Well, obviously, to start off with, 
many of those memories were difficult and not just me and my husband, but as a family, we had covered those memories over with a kind of shellac coating like a pearl. Um, so there was some digging involved in trying to reopen that kind of memory into finding again what was true back mm. then. But I also was very fortunate to have all the newspapers. I worked at the newspaper in that town and, uh, you know, sort of for a joke, I sent a subscription to my mother-in-law. So when I said I was beginning to work on this time and I was going to have to maybe go back to the town and she said, oh, I've got all those papers in the basement. And she brought up two cardboard boxes full of the newspapers that oh. I'd worked on. <laughs> they, it was like a, a, a horde, a dragon's horde of riches. It was oh, so dear. amazing. That helps crack the shellac much more easily. It did. I yeah. Yeah. It also gave me such a lovely view of the town through the papers. So, you know, that crazy, intimate, Mrs. Parr has some nephews coming to visit from England. Mm. That kind of level of news in a, in a community newspaper. And that really helped to pull me back into those times and remind me of the things that I had forgotten kind of as a side product of trying to forget other things. Sure. I wanted to ask about that job as a, a newspaper reporter, but first I wanted to go to the the sort of origin story of Julia. She's a playwright, like like yourself, and we get she gets to this town of Medway and she meets townspeople and RCMP members and members' wives, but she starts to think, I don't really understand the rules of this place, and somebody tells her, don't talk about anyone for five years. It's a real fish-out-of-water situation. How does she navigate those early days? That's such good advice. It's mm. probably good advice for life, you know, because... What our friend said, don't say anything mean about anybody for five years because you don't know who's related to who. And in the practice of not saying anything mean about people for five years, I maybe got a little nicer in my real life. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought of people more kindly. Um, she is, sees herself almost as an anthropologist visiting a strange country, I think, at first, because it's so far outside of her expectation, her understanding, her experience. And far outside of Hardy's as well. He's also a fish out of water. But he's got a big job to do, and her job is less demanding. So she has time to look around and try to figure people out and try and understand what it is like to live somewhere remote, rural, somewhere where your book learning is not necessarily privileged, mm. and to see what life is really like there. Now, you mentioned that her life is less demanding, but... Quite quickly, she gets that job as, a, as the reporter slash editor of the local newspaper, The Observer. And it's quite the busy job, this one-woman show that she's, she's doing. She's never done this kind of work before. And, you know, there's a, there's a line that Julia says, so many people to catalog and remember, so much hierarchy to understand. And I felt myself as a reader getting worried for her as well. And I took out my own pen and paper and made sure I have a you know, kind of a legend of, of all these people and the politics. And uh, how does that total immersion go for her? There's nothing like the total immersion of suddenly being the editor of a local paper because you're, you do everything. You take all the photos, you write all the news, you do all the layout. You're responsible for the paper from beginning to end. And you're there on the doorstep when somebody's daughter wins a prize or when somebody's son is in an accident 
all of that you're documenting and you're looking at with a kind of objective eye that is, I think, really a useful eye for fiction. Mm. And and meanwhile, her husband Hardy is going to accidents and crime scenes, investigating a long-running abuse case, uh, doing death notifications, and he doesn't share much about his work with Julia by by nature and and by training. So how does Julia deal with his 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 job and his stress as a, as a result of all that? It's a bit of a sticky situation for both of them because she's supposed to be a newspaper editor. She's supposed to be a journalist. So she should be digging up news, including RCMP news. But he is supposed to be maintaining the privacy and confidence of everybody that he deals with. And that silence between them, I found really interesting as I was working through the book, because it's matched by another kind of silence. And that's the silence that descends on Hardy as he falls into a depression and Mm -hmm. finds himself unable to speak. So those two joint kinds of silence were really interesting to me. How we lose the ability to talk to each other, and this happens, of course, in any marriage. But, you know, it also happens, I suppose, in a lot of working relationships where um, there's reason for confidentiality. The book begins with an epigraph. It's a quote from your husband, Peter Ormshaw, about the loneliness of racing down a highway at 200 kilometers an hour where the headlights can't see far enough. That's a very, very lonely, stark image. And loneliness is a major theme in this novel. Can you talk about what that is like for both Hardy and Julia? I think loneliness is built into that job and therefore built into the family's jobs as well. It's a natural consequence of being tasked with enforcing the law that you can't be friends with the people that you might have to police. You can be, you know, comradely, you can be friendly, but you have to be set apart in a way. Mm. And then within the families, therefore, you are also set apart from the rest of the community And yes, I do think that that causes a kind of loneliness that's just part of the job. I think, too, for these two people, there's a kind of loneliness in their removal from everything they know. They both are writers and they're both connected to an arts community that was vital to their lives and satisfaction. And they're removed from that because none of their former friends can really understand what they're doing, why they're doing it, for one thing, and what it is, what the job is that Hardy's now doing, and what the constraints and fears and stresses are, even for Julia. That's just beyond their comprehension. Yeah. In addition to the stress that you mentioned, Julia lives with a great deal of fear for Hardy's safety, but also for his men- mental health. And she worries that ju- that the job will, quote, tear Hardy apart like a meat grinder, unquote. And eventually it does. He develops PTSD, which is a not uncommon side effect of the job. Is there anything that Julia could really do to help? That's a a question that I asked myself over and over and over again while experiencing some of this. Of course, not exactly what Julia goes through because it's a fictional rendition of it. I showed the book to some RCMP members when it was finished 
to make sure that I wasn't getting anything so wrong that I would be sorry later. And one of the best responses I got was from a member who had served with Peter who said that she now knows that all members will struggle with PTSD, all. And I, I wish that I had known that myself um, as the wife of a member. I wish that I'd known earlier how pervasive it is, how much it really is, I, I think, an inevitable outcome of doing this job. And that, therefore, everybody needs to be given the supports and help that we now understand much more about. Mm. But I don't think we're yet really fully grasping that it is not some people suffer from PTSD or the weak people suffer from PTSD. It's just everybody. That is what's going to happen. Yeah, and it, it occurred to me while reading that you almost wouldn't want to meet somebody who is not affected in that way. You know, after a day of <laughs> cleaning up blood and gla gra glass from the highway and then going to tell family members that they've lost somebody in handling and then not being affected. I mean, what kind of person is that, right? It's just so natural, yeah. almost yeah. and normal to be affected in this um, very significant way mentally. Yeah, I think that's so true that we need to hang on to those people who are going to be better policemen mm. because they are affected, because they are human because they are aware of the importance of what you're do they're doing and still able to be affected. Yeah, I totally agree. Above and beyond the PTSD, the novels filled with the stories of other members and their families. And we see that camaraderie, which is so nice, but then also the toll that the job takes on every one of them. What's, what's the effect of this life on families? Well, it's not entirely doleful, I hope, because I think in a way it strengthens families and many of the uh, marriages and family structures that I came to know are, I think, stronger because they have been through this kind of crucible because they've had to find ways of still talking to each other, even in this kind of hardship. I think it's made my own marriage infinitely stronger to be going through this. Mm. But, you know, if there's already a crack, um, as happens to, one of the members we meet early on, Jack, who comes to visit, and his engagement has just been broken up. I think if there's already a crack, then probably that crack will be blown open by this kind of life. At the end of the book, Julie and Hardy move on to another posting, almost mercifully, we might say, as a reader, uh, as did you. What have you taken from those early years that you spent in, in Mayor Thorpe? I know that you said you're your own relationship is so much stronger because of it. What else did you take away from that time? Um, I have not thought about that before, about what else we brought from there beyond knowing that we could get through what was thrown at us, we could get through it. Mm. I guess what I brought away from there was just that secret memory of the wildest place I'll ever live and of having had the horses and of having, even though we were not very good at it, you know, we, somebody always came and cut our grass for hay because we never seemed to get that organized. I'm so happy to have had the chance to live in Canada in a way that I had never done before. That is so basic to our history and our lives. And to have experienced that daily for five years was just an incredible gift that even though we were from then on always in uh, urban postings, 
I won't forget it. And having gone through the process of remembering for this book, I'm really grateful for that, that memory being uh, made alive again and renewed for me. Hmm. You know, Marina, it, it bears mentioning that years after the time that you and your husband spent in Mayerthorpe, that city was uh, the scene of one of the worst episodes in RCMP history when four members were executing a search and they were shot and killed. Can I ask you what that tragedy unearthed for you? I talk about that in the epilogue, the, the sort of the coda to the book. It was impossible to write the book and not mention it because it was so central to the name of the town even and to our experience of being in the town because Peter, my husband, was involved in the early arrests of the man who ended up murdering those four members. But what I wanted to do in the book really was to say it wasn't that he was an obvious bad guy, that every town, every detachment all over Canada has not just one, but four, 11 people who they're concerned about, that there's thousands and thousands of police are dealing with somebody who could potentially turn into that guy every day. And they don't, they can't see forward to know who's going to be the one who is the powder keg that explodes. All they can do is try to manage as well as they can all the people that are worrisome, that are, that everybody knows could be trouble. So I wanted to make the book not an investigation of that specific event, but to help people realize how common, how ordinary, how small those triggers are, how huge the possibilities and how small our knowledge of what might happen. I'll ask you one last question uh, about Hardy. You know, <laughs> he, he's a particularly interesting officer in that he was a writer and a poet prior to joining the RCMP. Why did this, uh, this, this life of service sway him from the path that he was on? <laughs> it's fiction. <laughs> I keep telling it's not, people it's not it's job stability. It's not job stability and no. money. No. <laughs> oh no, I don't think it was a for not for a single second was it no, job stability or not. money. But Peter, my husband, Peter Ormshaw's father had been in the RCMP. It's a culture he grew up in, and he thought he knew. And I think what what really may have been pushed him into the police was that he's a large person, you know, substantial build, and he looks like a policeman. In fact, early on in our relationship, he gestured up and down his, you know, big frame and said, if I can't do that job, who can? Mm -hmm. And I think that there was, you know, tied to the sense of service, the sense of a long tradition, that there was also just this feeling of this is a hard job and I'm built for it. Mm. And I think it's a question that we maybe need to ask. Who can do this job? How can we make it a job they can do? Marina Endicott, thank you for such a wonderful chat. Oh, thank you, Ali. So nice to talk to you. Marina Endicott is the author of The Observer. She spoke with me from Saskatoon.
Essie Adugin has won the Giller Prize twice. First in 2011 for Half-Blood Blues, a story of a mixed-race jazz musician. And she won again in 2018 for her third novel, Washington Black. It's the virtuoso life story of a boy born into slavery in Barbados. This year, Essie published her first children's picture book, Garden of Lost Socks. And she was chosen as the chair of the 2023 Booker Prize jury. The winner of the Booker will be announced later this month, but she didn't let any spoilers slip when she came to the studio to answer the next chapter's version of the Proust questionnaire. Here is Essie Adugin. If you could change something about yourself, what would it be? Maybe the level of distractibility. I'm, I'm very distractible. I'm very uh, kind of absent-minded. I'm often losing my eyeglasses and my cell phone, which I think, you know, even just to come to Vancouver, I was running around trying to find my phone before uh, getting in the car to drive to the ferry, and I finally discovered it in the tea cabinet where I keep all of my teas, and this is just typically me. What is your greatest regret? My husband always says I'm somebody who's mired in regret, so I suppose I walk through the world with a lot of regrets. Um, you know, maybe a big regret is, uh, you know, my mother passed away like 27 years ago, and I wasn't able to uh, make it uh, back you know, back home to see her before she passed away, so perhaps I regret not getting on an earlier flight. Who is your favorite painter? I have so many favorite painters. Um, I adore uh, Lucien Freud. Uh, I really, really um, connect with his work uh, on a deep level. I just love Freud's, um, just the visceral nature of, of the way he paints the body. You know, he's not afraid to be ugly, to make to sort of show the, the ugliness of, of the human form. Uh, but there's also something very, um, the intensity of, uh, of his observation. You know, there's, there's something kind of loving in that. What is your favorite journey? Uh, I'm going to be very literal about this one and say that my favorite journey is, it's often the one I've just sort of taken, uh, but maybe the one that stands at the forefront for me is that I traveled with my brother and sister and my father to Ghana back in 2007, I believe it was, and it's the only time I've ever been to Ghana, which is where my parents were, were both born. It's not where they met, but it's, it's where, where they were both born, and so um, it was an opportunity to meet family members who up until that moment had just kind of been part of family lore and it was extremely moving particularly to meet my my father's mother uh, who was you know well over a hundred uh, at the time and you know passed away shortly afterwards what is your principal defect to sometimes uh, have blinders on and to feel that I am in the right and you know, I think probably we all find ourselves in this situation, but it, it kind of comes to a head when you're speaking to somebody who also feels very strongly that they're in the right. So a kind of self-righteousness uh, would be my principal defect. Where would you like to live? I would like to live, I guess, anywhere where I can be surrounded by uh, my family and 
and my closest friends and and that's where I'm at now I'm in Victoria and uh, we have a lot of family there uh, on both sides and and great friends and um, and so for now that is home what is your greatest fear you know there are so many kind of small fears that you could talk about um, but in the end they feel insignificant maybe my greatest fear is to find myself towards the end of my life maybe utterly alone uh, and you know and without support I think that that's that's probably a, a deep fear that's rattling around in there that I'm I'm not quite ready to face but but I know that's there who are your favorite characters in history I was just listening to a podcast about the six triple eight which was this in a group of female black female soldiers um, who in the Second World War were sent over to Europe uh, to help sort the mail um, because there was a huge backlog of mail uh, you know in some cases the, the mail had been backed up for like literally years and you know we might think that that's kind of a small thing um, but if you think in terms of uh, keeping up soldiers morale on the battlefield you know to be able to hear from your loved one uh, and to know that that they're safe and and to know that they know that you're safe like this is something immeasurable uh, so they went and and in record time you know cleared up this backlog of mail and I just thought that you know and they did it sort of under enormous um, constraints and duress and you know there was a, a sort of battling um, racial discrimination within the army and without and so I just you know I found um, that story very very uh, very stirring very memorable uh, and very inspiring what is your greatest extravagance yeah I have to admit that I am a bit of a clothes horse yeah I just I adore clothes what is your greatest achievement my greatest achievement um, would be my children, I think. Um, and that, you know, it might sound like a disingenuous thing to say, but it's, it's true. My kids are my greatest achievement. That was Essie Adujan answering the Proust questionnaire. Her most recent book is for children. It is called Garden of Lost Socks. Essie is also one of the contributors to a new eight-part documentary series, called Black Life Untold Stories. The series features stories, recreations, and archival material that reframes the history of black Canadians for contemporary audiences. It airs on both CBC and CBC Gem. We'll be back after these messages. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I, I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. You understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi. 
I'm Casey Plett, the author of On Community, and you are listening to the next chapter on CBC Radio 1. C.S. Richardson spent decades designing book covers, and he did it artfully and beautifully and won many awards. But he leaves the design of his own novels to someone else so he can focus on the writing. His first novel, The End of the Alphabet, won the Commonwealth Writers Prize for Best Book, Canada and the Caribbean. And his latest and third novel, All the Color in the World, was on this year's Giller shortlist. The novel follows the story of Henry, an art-loving young boy whose love of art continues into manhood. Our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, spoke with C.S. Richardson about all the color in the world. C.S. Richardson joins me now in our Toronto studio. Hello, sir. How are we doing? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. So uh, we're talking about all the color in the world. It's a non-traditional novel of sorts. The narrative feels like a sketchbook. There's like short chapters, Mm -hmm. um, non-fiction digressions about art and philosophy. And they're all kind of weaved into the fictional narrative. What was the model or inspiration for the book? Oh boy! Um, any number of things. I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of doing things a slightly different way, telling a story a slightly different way. Um, and one of my earliest inspirations, and it's a book I read 20 years ago, almost 30 years ago now, uh, Julian Barnes, A History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters, mm-hmm. in which he tells a fictional story through various chapters, and one of those chapters is an entirely non-fiction story. Mm-hmm about the Raft of the Medusa painting by Jericho. So that was a very early influence. Um, and what I was trying to do with All the Color in the World was basically bring nonfiction to the fore mm. as opposed to it being a backdrop. I wanted to use nonfiction and in particular art and notions of philosophy and color theory, uh, which would inform my protagonist's life. Mm. So this book is about Henry. He's the main character. He was born in 1916, Toronto. Um, So he's a child born in tragic circumstances, and his life revolves around a deep loss. What's what's his support system at that time? Oh, his grandmother. Hmm. His grandmother, yeah, he suffers the loss, not to give anything away, but he suffers the loss of his parents very early on and, and in quick succession. Um, and he is taken under his grandmother's wing, he and his, his baby sister. And she is, is an integral part of his growing up mm. until he becomes an adult, even to the point after he's an adult. Can we talk about Henry's grandmother? Like, Grand, sure. she's like a, a firecracker. <laughs> uh, she, she quotes Shakespeare. She's yep. fearless. She's a no-nonsense no Irish woman yep. who described as smelling of lemons and the occasional whiskey. <laughs> so I, I understand that you were thinking about your own grandmother uh, sure, when writing this book. Yeah. Um, tell me about your grandmother. Absolutely. Well, my grandmother, Bessie, she informed my life. I mean, she was a school teacher. Whenever she came to visit or whenever I went to visit her, it was doing the dishes in the kitchen and being quizzed on U.S. geography. So she was very much a part of my growing up. She wasn't Irish. Bessie, Bessie wasn't Irish. Mm. But, she I mean, she quoted Shakespeare. She quoted poetry. You know, I don't think I ever saw her drink whiskey. But, but yeah, <laughs> no, she was a huge part of my life. There. <laughs> huge part of my life. Nice. Uh, so it's grand that gives the eight-year-old Henry his first box of colored crayons, yep. colored pencils. And he commits these colors to memory. We're talking about cadmium. Uh, yellow, deep scarlet, red, and his passion for art and color starts from there. Yep. What is color to Henry? 
oh, color brings it all to life. Mm. I mean, he begins, I mean, he's he's a boy of overactive imagination to begin with. And he has, he has back in the day, they had these things called boys or annuals or chums annuals, which were basically a collection of adventure stories for primarily boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything from Ivanhoe to Knights of the Round Table, all those kinds of things. And they were illustrated in black and white. So Henry, he begins tracing those illustrations in black and white. And then Grand gives him the colored pencils, and suddenly what was just black and white and flat on the page comes to life for Henry, and it really just emboldens him even more. Yeah, so Henry's life begins with a cloud of like tragedy yep. and loss, and this yep. is sent, set in 1920s Toronto, yep. uh, the Sunnyside District, or the Lakeside District. What does that area of Toronto look like at that time? You know what? It has it hasn't <laughs> changed a lot. I mean, he Henry spends his summers on Sunnyside Beach, mm. and Sunnyside Beach, for those of folks who are in Toronto or, or know Toronto at all, Sunnyside Beach hasn't changed much. The the bathing pavilion, which was built in 1922, is still there mm. and still being used as a bathing pavilion. And you know, you can stand in the pavilion and take yourself back to the 1920s. Right, right. So the book is called All the Color in the World. Henry um, is an artist. He he loves color. He's inspired by color. He tries his hand at being an artist, but mm-hmm. his own art is deemed kind of p- pedestrian. Yeah. Um, so he finds his way into academia as an art historian. Right. It's arguably that kind of those who can't do teach <laughs> kind of scenario. <laughs> How does color shape his memory? Oh, boy. How does it... Oh. That's a really good question. Mm-hmm. I've never been asked that question. Mm-hmm. Um, it shapes it, I think, much like like my response to color is yeah. shaped. Um, it isn't an overt thing, but but through the course of the novel, he is in certain instances or something happens to him which sparks a memory okay. of a color right. or of a of a time when he was seeing a color. Mm-hmm. One of the, one of the passages in the book is about he's he's on a first date with a young love mm. and they go to see the Wizard of Oz in the movie theater. Um, and there's the point in the Wizard of Oz where it switches from black and white to color and his date literally, you know, knocks her popcorn flying because yeah. she's so stunned by it all and he remembers that, right. that sense of the technicolor and the ruby slippers and mm-hmm. that kind of thing, yeah. But what I love about this book, Scott, you weave into the narrative these um, real-life digressions about yep. art and art history, mentions of Da Vinci, Van Gogh, yep. Marcus Aurelius, um, yep. how the how Crayola crayons were created. <laughs> um, what was your research process? Was it kind of all internal? Did you go searching? No, I did. I, well, it was a combination of two. I mean, I studied art history in university, so I had a bit of a background going in. Uh, But I didn't want to just write about my favorite paintings or the paintings that I remember from school. Mm. The nonfiction that I was weaving had to fit with the fiction. So I did a combination of sort of recollecting some things, but also doing a ton of research and, you know, and and finding the right image or the right mini story that would fit with Henry's story. Yeah. Uh, whether it was the history of Crayola crayons or the notion of the Wizard of Oz being turned from a black and white film into a color film, yeah. all that kind of stuff. I had to research. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The story, I don't want to give too much away in this story, but I, I, it's like 120 chapters. Mm-hmm. Each chapter is very brief and you interspersed yep. in the nonfiction, which kind of in, is what he's thinking about and it kind of informs the story or drives the story. But yeah. 
just thinking of Henry, his life is so sad. <laughs> there's so much <laughs> tragedy. And, and there's, there's a point early in the story where it's kind of like a point of no return, where it's in terms of having a quote-unquote normal life. Right. Uh, how, how does tragedy color his world? See that's who I did there. Oh, boy. It's Yeah, that's a good one. You know, Henry's story is, yeah, it's full of tragedy and stuff like that. But I'll be shameless to admit um, that tragedy is what drives a lot of stories. Mm. Like you want to compel a reader to keep going. Yeah. Throw a little tragedy in. Throw a little war. Throw a little death in the family kind right. of stuff. And that and that tends to inform the story and drive it along a lot more. To some people, if you read Henry's story, it's just nonstop tragedy. Yeah. But I don't want to give anything away. I mean, it doesn't always end badly. Mm, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been in the book publishing industry for over 40 years yep. uh, as a book designer, graphic mm-hmm. designer. Um, you've designed a lot of book covers that people are familiar with, like Michael Crummy's Galore and many more. Yep. What, what excites you about the book design process? Oh, every book is different. Hmm. Absolutely every book is different. I mean, you are not, it's not like you're designing a widget or you're designing a soapbox yeah. or whatever. Every single book you have to, you start from scratch. Hmm. Um, and I loved doing that. And I, I mean, there were some books you, you know, I mean, for all the wonderful books that I designed, I also designed like financial guides yeah. and, you know, how to invest your money and all those kinds of self-helpy kind of stuff. Mm. So I did those things as well. But every book is different, and so and every challenge is different. The book design process for me is fairly quick. I mean, usually once I read a brief or once I read a portion of the book that I'm about to design, I get an idea in my head pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I will, you know, I'll throw down two or three different de- designs. Mm. So I'm looking at the cover of your book, All the Color in the World, <laughs> How much did you have a hand in designing this one? It's it's beautiful. Obviously, it's, this is um you can't see it. It's like looks like a Toronto street in winter. There's like people walking in umbrellas. There's like swaths of color <clears throat> on the top and the bottom. Like how involved were you in this? Um, well, I didn't design it. Um, I mean, you know, a lot of people ask me, did you design your own book? Well, mm. I don't design my own books because two reasons. Number one is that having sat on the other side of the fence. Uh, or the table and listened to authors and tried to work with authors. And, and some authors are terrific and realize that you're there just to help. Mm. But a lot of authors think they know better yeah. uh, in terms of design. Uh, and it ends up just being a nightmare and a dog's breakfast of a, of a cover design. So mm. I did not want to be one of those authors. Yeah. For me, it was all about the writing. Uh, second, second reason is that Kelly Hill, who designed All the Color in the World, has been my designer for three books now. Um, I've known Kelly for 20-odd years. She is arguably the best in the country. So I knew going in that I would be in very good hands. She and and the publisher showed me three different designs, and almost instantaneously we all went, that's the design. Nice. Yeah. So bringing it from those technical details to the literary ones for this book, there's a Jan Martel's quote where you, in the beginning of the book it says, art is seed, art is memory, art is vaccine. Yeah. what has art meant for your life? 
pretty much all of the above. Mm. It's, I mean, I've always been interested in art ever since high school days, even before that. But it's always informed my life. It's what gets me up in the morning. It's what I enjoy the most. I mean, I could spend all day in an art gallery. So I don't know what it is. I don't, you know, I think some people have music or some people have literature or some people have whatever. Uh, For me, it's art. Mm. Yeah. So what do you want people to take away from this book is such a high-level question. But (laughs) (laughs) just thinking about that, thinking of Henry's journey, what do you want people to take away from it? That art is a lot more powerful than you think it is and that it can, you know, be a vaccine. It can soothe the troubled soul. It can get you through bad times. It can get you through great times. It's a memory palace. It's all of those things. I mean, for me, art enhances my life. I think art certainly enhances Henry's life, even through the worst of times. Mm. Yeah. Scott, thanks for the conversation. Thank you, sir. (laughs) It was great. Appreciate it. C.S. Richardson is the author of All the Color in the World. He spoke with Ryan B. Patrick in Toronto. Donna Bailey Nurse has talked very movingly on this show about what it has meant to her to read black women writers over the years. And she has championed many of them here on the next chapter and in her writing and reviewing. She's here today to tell us about two more of her favorites. She's paired a veteran Caribbean writer and a new novel from a young Canadian that Donna recommends as a good matchup read. Ryan B. Patrick spoke with Donna about her two recommendations. So let's talk about what brings you here today. Let's talk first about the veteran Caribbean writer that you want to talk about. The veteran Caribbean writer is Jamaica Kincaid. You know how they say truth is beauty and beauty is truth? Mm. She's so focused on telling the truth of an experience, her experience, or just the truth of a situation. Mm. There's hardly ever even any metaphor (laughs) or adjectives. But it's, it creates this beautiful tone and line. For example, think of a person who sings a cappella, yeah. just something unadorned, or a violin solo. That's how beautiful. And although she kind of avoids, maybe not even purposely, metaphor, etc., you still get a really powerful sense of atmosphere. And for me, I'm sure other people feel other things, it's eerie, Faulknerian, gothic that I often, is a sensibility that I get out of her writing. To me, she's just a really unique, and um, I don't love the term must read. Yeah. But if you are reading about black women, you must read her. Yeah, I think Jamaica Kincaid is very... Is underrated the right word? It's kind of one of those names people have always heard, and then you That's ask right. what book you've read of That's hers, right. you're like, they're like, oh, I don't know. That's <laughs> you know right, what I mean? exactly. So let's talk about the book that you want to talk about that she okay. wrote. The book that I'm going to talk about today is the autobiography yeah. of my mother. And most of her stories are really rooted in the truth. Even though, and, and she actually did tell me this, even though now she seems to have changed her story. But all the novels that she has written are really rooted very much in truth. And so the autobiography of my mother 
is about her mother, Zula Claudette Richardson. But of course, it's a novel because she can't know everything Mm. about her mother. Mm. So the book, again, is called The Autobiography of My Mother, was published in 1996. That was more than 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Why has it stayed with you for such a long time? Well, the reason is around that time, I really began to become... I mean, I've always been an intense reader, but really began to look for myself. Mm. And um, with Jamaica Kincaid and many black women writers, but that book in particular has become foundational for me as the story of how a black woman in this world can come to know themselves and love themselves. That is at the heart of quite a lot of black women's writing. And um, with Jamaica Kincaid, it was almost like a step-by-step, if you follow this. She herself, the character in the novel, Zula, knows that she needs to figure out who she is. And from a young child, she sets about doing this. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about Jamaica Kincaid, what is the secret sauce? What makes her work so transformative? Um... As I was saying, that honesty, and she is one of those people who wants to remind us as Caribbean people of our African roots, Mm. or she just wants to alert us to the fact that we are often choosing to ignore our roots and to embrace and accept the colonizers idea of spirituality, values, culture. And she makes that, and that's something that I doesn't always go over well with a lot of Caribbean readers because she's just that kind of honest person that irks people. Yeah. And, and there's one particular scene I just want to point to in this book. Is that okay? Yeah. Um, in this particular book, there's a scene that for me is emblematic uh, of that issue Zula is a young schoolgirl. She's walking home from school with her friends. And they're walking by the river, and they look in the river, and they see this beautiful river goddess or apparition. I mean, so beautiful, glistening, dark skin, beautiful mm. hair, like a mermaid. And they recognize it as some sort of deity. And one of her friends, the little boy, says, you know, I want to go out there closer and see her. And they're like, no, don't go. And he's like, no, I'm going to swim out to see her. But as it is with these deities, and you can't get too close. So he swam and swam, and they all watched him swim and swim and swim and swim. And he could just never reach her, even though she wasn't that far. Mm. And then he sunk beneath the surface and was never seen again. And what happens is that the children start to say, we didn't see that. We never saw that apparition. Mm. They didn't believe with their own eyes what they saw, a spirit from their own African belief system. Mm. But the character, Zula says, I believe I saw it then, and I still believe. I still believe now that I saw that. So that's her line in the sand, I believe. I'm connected to that. I'm not giving up my beliefs. Mm, That's very powerful and transformative. That's the autobiography of my mother by Jamaica Kincaid, which was published in 1996. I know that the next book that you want to talk about is a new book. Yes. came out this year. Who is the writer and what is the book? The writer is Zalika Reed Benta. Mm. 
and the book is River Mama. Yes, this is a very uh, much talked about book. It is. Um, very buzzworthy. Uh, tell me more about it. Okay, the reason that I'm sort of connecting, thinking that this book is similar to the autobiography of my mother, is the figure of the river deity. So River Mama would be that same kind mm. of river deity. Uh, although um, Jamaica Kincaid is Antiguan and as Zalika Reed Benta is of Jamaican heritage, it's the same sort of um, mythological figure. Mm. She is at the center of this novel. And Zalika Reed Benta writes about the, the heroine named Alicia. She's 26 years old. She had a tremendous education, which she paid a lot for. Uh, she was considered probably the most promising student with a promising future. Uh, she studied as well in New York, but here she is now. Back in Toronto, <laughs> working retail. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so she's so disappointed that her dreams have not manifested, that what she worked so hard toward, and a lot of people can identify with this. Mm. And here she is. You know, what does her future hold? What was the point of her education? Who is she? She's really feeling lost. And this is added to by the fact that, you know, the woman that would have given her, she has a lovely mother, but the woman that would have given her great guidance at a time like this is her grandma. And 10 years before her grandmother passed away. So she's just feeling really lost. So, of course, Alika Reed Benta is a Jamaican-Canadian author. Her debut novel was Flying Plantain, was a novel more of a collection of stories. That came out a few years ago. Yes. It was a breakout book. So this book kind of delves into magic realism. How does magic realism work in this book? Well... Just I can actually just carry on from that story because, you know, saying she's down the dumps. Mm. So she's feeling bad about herself and she's, you know, she goes out to this Christmas or New Year's party or something and she starts to walk home. And as she's walking home through a park near the Humber River, she feels this oddness in the atmosphere and she feels Humber River calling her. Mm. And she's freaked out, but she still goes towards... Uh, the river. And one thing I should say is that her grandmother recognized in her the fact that Alicia could have visions. Alicia was thought to be susceptible to duppies, which are Jamaican ghosts. So she has a sort of a susceptibility to, you know, spirits. And, And so the Humber River is calling her. And when she gets to the Humber River, she sees this beautiful goddess, gorgeous black mermaid who she recognizes from stories she heard from her youth as River Mama. Mm. And so River Mama actually drags her into the river, takes her back to her past for a brief vision of her ancestors. Alicia recognizes these women and then whips her back onto the banks of the Humber River. And what River Mama needs for Alicia to do, she has a task for her, she needs for Alicia to find her missing gold comb for her hair. And that is where the magic comes in. What I will say about that is that even though we're talking about magic realism, I might not say that. Mm. And because, you know, people use that a lot with black uh, women's writing. But I would kind of say maybe folktale, but also think something like The Wizard of Oz, which is very, very prominent in this novel. So Alicia and her two friends are tasked now with finding this gold comb before all kinds of disasters happen. But in 
trying to find this gold comb. It's a romp. <laughs> it's like an absolute romp through the city of Toronto on the, like, you know, <laughs> unreliable TTC to uh, U of T where they encounter ghosts to the Royal York Hotel, the Don Valley. I mean, it's really familiar and mm. it's so exciting to have that Jamaican mythology just buried into our Canadian, our Toronto environs. And of course, you know, she's chased by duppies, chased by goats. It's very lively and she's very good at this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but I yeah. definitely want to dive oh, into yes, that. Definitely. The main character is a young woman. She, as you mentioned, she's at a crossroads in her life right. and the career in the city. Do you see this as a coming of age story? I don't really see it as a coming-of-age story. I see it in the way that she really feels disconnected from anything meaningful in her life. (laughs) And so what happens is her connection to the River Mama, she begins to really... And and there's many, many scenes in which she is thrown to the past to see her ancestors. And she begins to see the strength and the power and how much those women have overcome and how much the River Mama meant in their lives. And it gives her a sense of purpose and a sense of confidence. Hey, I can get this comb. I I know who I am. I am a person that comes from these women. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really coming of age, but maybe coming into herself in confidence, renewed confidence as who she comes from, you know, and <laughs> what she is capable of accomplishing. I'm getting really excited and really <laughs> hyped. <laughs> really hyped to read this oh, book. I wish it could even be bigger. <laughs> to be honest, I was like, you know, I really wanted to sink in more. And I, I really hope she she pursues. Mm. I mean, she can write and she can probably, obviously she can write anything. I don't know this for sure, but I know she was irritated at the way people were approaching her about the steely realism about her last novel. I mean, which is to say that she was just writing a novel, but people were taking it as such so dark and realistic and serious. And I could see that that was aggravating her. No, this is these are stories. And so it's so great to see her feel that she can be playful and mix genres and I do <laughs> wish that I, I could have spent more time in that world yeah. and I, I feel confident that I will nice. <laughs> that I will have an opportunity <laughs> Awesome Donna, so those are two great books that match up really well with each other Thanks so much Thank you That was our columnist Donna Bailey Nurse in conversation with Ryan B. Patrick The books Donna spoke about are on our website cbc.ca slash the next chapter That is it for today's program. Jacqueline Kirk is our senior producer with Lisa Matthews and Trevor Carter. My thanks this week to Barb Carey, Emily Carvacio, and to the CBC Books digital team. Coming up next week, the pastry chef, a.k.a. pastry nerd, Saeed Emdehoma. He recommends three of his favorite cookbooks, and yes, one of them is all about pastry. And our contributor, Ryan B. Patrick, talks with Don Gilmore about breaking and entering. It follows the fortunes and misfortunes of a midlife woman who takes up lockpicking. I'm Ali Hassan. Thanks for listening to the next chapter.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.